The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. And the Major Knight, and I, no, no, okay, I tried. <laughs> I won't sing anymore. <laughs> please don't, please don't, man, please don't. It, ne it never goes well. <laughs> well, also, that's one of the most catchy anime songs in the history of anime, like, ever, period. Ah, um, but it's not anime. It's not anime, yes, you're right, it's not anime <laughs> at all. And tonight, folks, we're going to be talking about mecha anime, following up on our previous episode where we talked about mecha anime, but that time we talked about super robots, and this time we're going to be talking about real robots. Mm. Although I'm not talking about that robot dog thing from Boston Dynamics that chases you around, I'm talking about <laughs> anime real robots, which doesn't actually mean real robots, it just kind of means realistic robots. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an actual genre term, we didn't come up with it ourselves. Yeah. So, Don, how would you define real robots, then? Okay, now this is um, where it gets tricky, and, and, and again, I think we'll, we'll especially need the disclaimer this episode, mm -hmm. that there's a lot of wiggle room in, in your definition for, for what a makes a real robot show as mm -hmm. opposed to a super robot show or a straight-up sci-fi show. Mm -hmm. uh, in general, a real robot show... Uh, we got into it last episode. There's more focus on the setting and the characters. Mm -hmm. There's usually a political element to it. Or political or militaristic. They have to have some excuse to have giant robots around and them being repaired and resupplied. Like, you know, robots don't take care of themselves, especially realistic ones. So you need a supply chain. You need something, someone to take care of them. And the military does that just fine. Yep, and I think you're kind of hinting at another part of it is that in a real robot show, the robots tend to be they're mass produced. Mm -hmm. That was the the difference in in a super robot show. The hero robot is almost always a one of a kind, special, ancient, reworked, um, invented by my uncle or father that's now dead and the aliens attacked. Mm -hmm. It has physics defying powers. Again, it's it's like superhero technology here. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, real real robot shows, even if the hero's robot is really, like, top of the line, it doesn't necessarily break the physics of the setting. Right. And, well, is constrained by the physics of the setting. I mean, you, yeah. once you establish them, you have to kind of stick with what you've set up. Yeah, and I think that's part of it, too, is that I don't want to say... The, 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 the physics of, of real life because a lot of these shows will have uh, kind of an underlying premise as to why you have robots mm. and that can be your weird science kind of thing but everything will be wrapped around that mm -hmm. and there'll be something of an effort to define how that super technology works and how it's applied to robots right 
well, they have to have some excuse because the problem is thanks to the small thing called physics and reality, giant robots don't really work that well. Yeah, generally. <laughs> um, it's the whole, you know, was it square cube law, if I remember right? Where, yeah, oh, they, yeah. We, we just don't have materials that are strong enough to actually make those things that big in real life and actually have them run around and everything without falling apart. Yeah, and we don't have the uh, the ability to power them so they could move faster than a very small, like very slow crawl. Exactly. So that's a bit of a problem, especially since they're a gigantic target for, you know, tank shells and other, you know, high-powered ordnance. So yep. therefore, you need some really, really good excuse to come up with uh, why they're going to, why they're breaking the physics of our reality. Yeah. And a lot of times, too, that'll become a plot point. Mm-hmm how the robots work and how the technology works will be a big part of the story. And, and as it goes on, it'll be revealed right. where this tech comes from. Protoculture. Um, well, yeah, there's protoculture. There's the E-Day from mm-hmm. Idian. Um, the Aura Battlers use like the strength of your, your, your personal spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's all kinds of different, different the Gundams things. are using Minoski particles and yep. other things. So yeah. You know, there's there's all these different systems. No, that but it's not always the case. But well, here let's let's go back a little in time so we can we can work our way through this. Um, okay. So the very first super robot show was, of course, Messenger Z. What would technically be the first real robot show? Okay, this is one um, where I think the debate kind of starts because you can make an argument for I would say three shows. There's two that generally come up, but I would put a third in there. Mm-hmm. Well, and the that, first is obviously uh, the original Mobile Suit Gundam. Yep, and and we mentioned that. It still borrows heavily from uh, the imagery and the plotting and mm-hmm. the situations of the, um, the, the super robot. Yep. But it's definitely the first of something different. Yeah, it's, it's the crossover show. It's the hybrid show that's kind of one step in that direction, or yep. actually several steps in that direction. And then... The follow-up shows are the ones that really carry it to the next level. So yep. what would be your follow-up shows then? I would have to slip into that Idian. Okay, why? Idian still borrows a lot from the super robot thing because the Idian itself is powered by the E-Day, mm-hmm. which is this legendary mystic energy that the Buff Clan, who are the mm-hmm. aliens, the aliens are actually... I think they call them the 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 seventh, the sixth, or the seventh extraterrestrial civilization. Okay, because in the setting, mm-hmm. humanity's already met aliens. Yes, you don't see any of the other ones, but it's clear that the Buff Clan, as mm-hmm. they call themselves, which is really weird because they're all the little skinny dudes, but they're supposedly the sixth or the seventh we've met. Right. And the E-Day, this this energy, is part of, of this kind of lost religion that they mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. that most of their people kind of think is, is just mythology. Right. Well, you mentioned a lot about uh, Idian last episode as well. Yeah. So we don't have to go too, too in-depth into it. Yeah. It kind of, the interesting thing about that is humanity has a super robot, mm-hmm. but the Buff Clan uh, mecha and technology it follows certain paths and conventions that you see later on in the real robot shows. Okay. So in essence, it's kind of both, mm-hmm. but the other way around, because 
the invading aliens are the ones that have the more, I, I can't say realistic, but the more thought out, the more mm -hmm. grounded technology. Right. And then the humans are the ones using the super robot. Yeah. Okay. And it really is because um, the, the idiot itself is considered the most powerful giant robot in anything ever. Mm -hmm. Because as the show goes on, it gets more powerful. Okay. Because it's basically linked to the life force of all living things in the universe. But there are the same number of... Actually, there's less living things in the universe as the story goes on, not more. <laughs> yes, there are. Like we said last time, um, the series ends with like the death of all living things in the, the universe and the creation of a new one. Good so, times, good times. Mm. Yeah, while well, they last. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, exactly. You gotta enjoy yourself while you can. All right, mm. so Idian, okay, because of that, it's it sounds to me though like Idian is basically just like the first Gundam. It sounds like Idian is basically halfway across, but not quite to a quote unquote real robot show yet. Yeah, they're 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 painting down how the technology is supposed to work in a more grounded show, mm -hmm. and Idian kind of it doesn't lead in a straight line to. But the show that I think is the first real robot show borrows heavily from Idian. Right. Now, we should note something that's going on in Japanese pop culture at this time. I think I've mentioned it in previous shows. At this point, a lot of American, like, 60s and 70s sci-fi and that is getting, especially the 60s and 50s stuff, I should say, is getting translated. All right? Mm. So the Japanese... Uh, fandom and actually the pros who are writing these shows are reading the American sci 60s sci-fi 50s 60s you know space opera sci-fi stuff so a lot of what's going to happen is actually influenced by that too yeah um, there's definitely a connection there as which I mentioned before in the show and we'll get to again when it as it comes up but stylistically mm -hmm. um, not that I think what you're about to talk about is you know, out of any like 60s sci-fi novel. It's not really, but there are some elements there where it's pulling from some of it. But anyway, yeah. so let's, uh, okay, let's hit it. So <laughs> the the first realistic robot show or real robot shows we're going to call it for this episode is? I would have to go with Macross. I thought you were going to go for goddamn Go Whopper 5. <laughs> Sorry, folks, no. I just had to slip that in there somewhere. No, no, it's Macross. Yeah, that, that definitely does win for best title for a giant robot show It ever. does. It really does. <laughs> God damn. Anyway, so. <laughs> I'm going to slip that in every episode from now on. Hey, we have a routine. <laughs> yeah, maybe. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. All right. So I, I don't think we're going to be able to get that into the um, My Little Pony episode, but I'll do my best. <laughs> we have time to work on it. <laughs> we do. All right. Anyway, <laughs> Rob disturbed himself. That's a good trick. I did actually. The idea of doing a My Little Pony show is right up there. All right, <laughs> so back on track. Um, so, what makes Macross then the first real robot show? Like, what qualifies it according to your criteria? I'm not arguing with you. I just want to know. Well, there's a couple things that come up, mm -hmm. and I think. After we're done with Macross, we're going to have to kind of take a step back a bit. But mm. Macross, it's, it's, the technology is very grounded. Mm -hmm. um, there's kind of a running backstory to the original Macross that doesn't come out in the original Macross about uh, where the tech comes from and how it works. Well, it's called, in the original Macross, it's called like Overtech, basically. It's not Robotech, it's Overtech. Like, it's this 
technology they've gotten from the space fortress and everything, right? Yeah, because what ends up happening is the uh, the Zentradi. There's there's the Zentradi, and there's something called the Inspections Group, right? And they have like a civil war that lasts for it, it's like a hundred thousand years. Well, the Zentradi, if I remember right, were created as space police, basically. They were enforcers, basically. That's what they were. They were an army to enforce whatever their creator's um, law or rules were. Yeah, it's tough to tell. And if there's a Macross expert out there, feel free to write in. Um, The idea of the Zentradi being like a space police is more a Robotech thing. Oh, okay. Um. The inspections group they kind of imply might have actually been the the the, the police or the the over group. Okay, and that was why when the Zentradi rebelled, mm-hmm. they lost a lot of the technology. Like if you remember, they can't fix things. Mm. So when when like Breitai's ship, when the big screen in his observation bubble gets smashed when our heroes are escaping, it never gets fixed in the original show because they have no tax. They have no way yeah. to actually fix anything. Yeah, they don't exactly understand the tech because the Brainiac guys, they killed them all off a long time ago. Yeah. Now, they do have automated factories, though, which are producing new ships and presumably repairing them, too. Yeah, because you, you see one of those. They're scattered. They kind of lost track of all of them. Mm. And the ship that crashes on Earth is one of these, uh, one of these like, overships, one of the... Yeah. the ins- inspections group and that's why the guys that are after earth are trying to get the ship back because they want the tech which isn't entirely different from robotech it's very similar yeah yeah except that robotech added the idea of protoculture mm. that was a power source that let you combine with 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 the robot and it let super tech happen in the original macross everything's just nuclear powered yeah the protoculture refers to uh basically if i remember again if i remember correctly mm-hmm. it's oh. like micronian culture okay that protoculture is kind of this lost kind of society that mm. the aliens used to have but don't have anymore right yeah like it's a cultureless society yeah yeah it's just a term that comes up in a couple of the write-ups that you see on in some of the magazines and model kit boxes mm. But, of course, they ran with it and they said, well, protoculture is this amazing energy that lets you power max and do amazing stuff with. That's the Robotech version. Yeah, plus it gave them an excuse to hook together the other shows. Yeah, which they did a decent job with. But, okay, so we'll Mm. sort of. uh, But we can talk about that later. Um, (laughs) It is interesting, actually, in that way that Macross is a little bit similar to Idian. So, you again, the humans are using this, like, amazing technology they don't really understand. Yeah, and, and if you've ever seen Idian, it plays out the same because the mm. humans take off in, in the, the solo ship. It's called because the solo or the this race they find mm-hmm. ruins of on, on, on a planet. Right. And they're running from the, the buff clan who want the E Day back, and it plays out a lot like like it reminds you a lot of Macross. Right. And there's civilians on the ship because they rescued whoever they could. Well, they're all still following the Gundam thing, right? Because the original Gundam yeah. has, you know, they, they end up with a special mech and they're being pursued by enemy forces and they end up with civilians on the ship. 
and there's all the yeah, you know, there's this element. In fact, I often wondered. I know Gundam actually, if I remember right, Gundam predates Battlestar Galactica. If I remember right, let me just they're, double check that. They're contemporaries. They're Galactica contempor- was seventy eight, and Gundam was like seventy eight, seventy nine. Yeah, so I I always wondered that because. Was that just a thing or idea that was going around at that time? There's a lot of similarities there, actually. Yeah, I think part of it might be... I don't know if it was popular in Japan. But it I, might tie It might tie in with what you said about how in the 70s and 80s they were exposed to more of our stuff. But Battlestar Galactica was, in a lot of ways, um, a man-in-a-suitcase show mm-hmm. in space. Uh, What? Like, we used to do shows in the 60s and 70s. Um, mm-hmm. A lot I've seen the term man in a suitcase used to describe them. I've never heard that term before. Please go on. It's because there's a show that was called, uh, I, th- I believe, Man in a Suitcase. And it's like the, um, you, you've seen, it's like the Invaders. Okay. Or um, the Fugitive. Mm-hmm. With, like, the guy who's wandering, or the original Incredible Hulk. The guy who's trying to keep one step ahead of whoever it is that's after him. And he wanders the countryside doing random good deeds. And then he has to take off before they catch up with him. Man and a suitcase. Okay, got it. Okay. Man in a suitcase. Man, it is. Okay. I was beginning to wonder if you, man in a suitcase. That's just odd. Okay. Man and Hmm. a suitcase would make more sense. Hmm, that's interesting. I don't, I'm not saying you're getting it wrong. I believe you that they call it, the, I guess, man in a suitcase. Wow, I've never heard that term before. That's something new. Okay. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I think there was a show back in the 60s that was called that. That Because there were a lot of these shows that mm-hmm. nobody remembers because they just disappeared. Right. Well, I'll put that in the show notes if I can find more information about it. But okay. So mm-hmm. I... You know, in my book, actually, I refer to this kind of story as the hunted hero story. Yeah. Um, which is the same kind of thing, where we've got a hero who's up against some monolithic foe. They usually have some great ability of some kind, and they're but they're effectively alone, so they just wander around with the bad guys hot on their heels most of the time, doing yeah. good deeds and trying to build up forces or trying to find, you know, find some usually find allies or some resources they can use to help defeat the bad guys, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, and that, as I said, goes back to, at least on the Japanese side, goes back to uh, the legend of Yoshitsune from yeah. like uh, the tale of Genji, which I believe is about 12th century, a 12th century novel. Um, so the Japanese have had that for a little while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the hero and his buddies being chased around by the, you know, big bad emperor is what it basically amounts to. And that's what Gundam really is. I mean, you know, it's, you know, they're, and obviously Idian is, and so is uh, Macross. Yeah, there, there's, there, there's a lot of, a lot of similarities. And there's no question then that a lot of the 80s stuff, not all of it, but a lot of the 80s stuff would follow that pattern. Like especially a lot of the 80s mecha stuff. Yeah, yeah. As I recall, the, the guy, the, the main guy who was in charge of, uh, Mm-hmm. of uh macross right or one of them worked with uh tomino on the original gundam i can double check that but i'm pretty sure you're probably right yeah if you remember gundam susei he was the guy that was uh nearly got crushed watching them demolish the building because he wanted to take notes on what realistic damage looks like i do i remember him but i don't remember his name yeah yeah what, what don's he... referring to is there's this 
slightly humorous uh, biographical comic and manga, basically, that was done about the origins of Gundam and about mm. the events that happened around the creation of the Gundam story. It's actually pretty amusing because it's meant to be. And yeah. Um, and yeah, it introduces all the different people, all the different uh, people that were involved from Tomino himself to all his assistants and mecha designers and all that stuff. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because uh, Macross is kind of a weird, weird story because it was a hot potato for a little while. By which, what do you mean? Well, it, it got passed around to different production companies and nobody knew exactly what to do with it. Right. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Like, they wrote it originally kind of as, as like a, a fairly serious action story. Mm -hmm. But the one production company got a hold of it, wanted to do it like a comedy. Yes, because Macross was supposed to be a comedy at one point. Yeah, and it kind of goes back and forth. And I think in some ways that might have helped because the show has a little bit of everything. It's got comedy. It's got drama. Mm. It 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 does what um a lot of... The, there, there's a bunch of things that happen mm -hmm. with real robots that Macross is kind of the first time you really see it. Right. Um, one of them is that idea of, of the uh, of drama. Mm -hmm. but that the drama plays out right if you remember in all the other ones that you you'd get like in the super robot shows there'd always be drama because there'd always be like the the cool loner guy and i i believe you called him the hot the the the, the angry blockhead i think yeah the angry used. blockhead yeah that would be a good term for him yeah <laughs> and and then like the the, the there's the the quote-unquote the chick that's in all of them who's just there to fight over and stuff mm -hmm. and you get the soap opera kind of kind of thing going on that in the last two or three episodes to get resolved because the one guy sacrifices himself and the other guys decide we have to do it for him and then yep there's blah, always blah, blah. the ace who dies standard mm. but when you got to a uh, gundam you got to to idian you got macross especially you got this idea of these soap opera stories that kind of progressed mm -hmm. and resolved and bounced off of each other as the series went on right yeah Definitely. That was kind. That was kind of new. Mm -hmm. um, you got the idea with uh, the real robot shows, and this is where I think Macross kind of sets the tone. Mm -hmm. The animation quality takes a huge leap in, in forward. Right. Um, there's more detail. Yeah. It's better now. Macross itself has like some of its not so good episodes or scenes and stuff. Mm -hmm. But overall, it they're using really really detailed expensive animation on the show yeah it's hard to tell from modern perspective but they really are yeah now if, if you look at say the original gundam mm -hmm. and uh macross you can definitely see a difference oh yeah like there's macross uses like much finer line weights uh mm -hmm. there's more color gradation mm -hmm. a lot more detail mm -hmm. that i think is an important part of the real robot thing because when you start adding the extra detail, it makes the things exist as objects mm -hmm. in the sense like if uh, if you anybody's read um, uh, Understanding Comics, mm -hmm. Scott McCloud, he talked about that, that a cartoonier character design is easier to read things into and we tend to empathize more. But if you draw something more detailed and realistic it tends to our brain sees it as separate from us mm -hmm. it becomes an object in its own right and i think that was part of what you did 
with the super robot shows is that jump in technical quality it gave them a different air it made them feel more real and it separated them from the more cartoony physics bending stuff of the super robot show Mm. that makes sense yeah, that makes sense. I mean, but I think the thing everyone really just got off on was the fact that they had F-15s that turned into robots. <laughs> well, there was that, but it was that idea that you'd look at them and go, that's an F-15. You didn't, it didn't kind of look like a jet. Yeah, it didn't. It wasn't this clunky, weird-looking thing that vaguely, yeah, like, like Radine, for example, who mm-hmm. uh, could turn into a jet that was really just him with his like arms against his side and his legs up at a weird angle and some extra fins. Yeah, and, it, and it's not like if you remember the, uh, see, the action cartoons of the 70s where they'd call out the jet fighters to fight the enemy robot, and they kind of looked like F-4 Sabres. Mm, or, no, exactly. the F4 is the, or the F-4 is the Phantom, but they'd look like a, a Sabre or a Phantom. Right. Kind of. Mm-hmm. But they were really simplified because, you know, you had to crank the animation out, and at that time they weren't sinking a lot of dollars into it. Right, yeah. Yep. And like, right. and like I say, with Macross, that changed. Right. Yeah, Macross, they, they actually tried to do something different. Mostly thanks to Shoji Kawamori, um, who's mm-hmm. the mecha designer for the for Macross. Mm-hmm. Hmm, okay. And then Macross adds another weird thing. Right. That when I think is more a product of the time, mm-hmm. but becomes a staple of the real robot show. And that's, you get more, I'd say, either contemporary. Mm-hmm. Or serious theme music. Okay, but Gundam had theme music too. It did. Gundam did. Idian did. Um, they weren't mm-hmm. like the super robot shows that where it was the 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 song was always a list of the robots' powers and how awesome they were. Well, there's that, yeah. But when you got to the original Gundam and you got to like uh, Idian, mm-hmm. their theme songs still kind of sounded like the robot songs. They were they were like a crooner. Mm-hmm. Over, over like a like a limited orchestra kind of thing. Yeah, we talked about that last time. That one dude who sang everything. Yeah, and that's probably why they they all kind of had the same feel. Exactly. But when you got into the uh, the super robot stuff, they tended to use um, mm-hmm. like Macross used a lot of very classical sounding music. Yes, definitely. And the later shows would use very contemporary things, so you get stuff that had like very jazz sounding themes. Mm-hmm. That's true. Or or techno rock, or when you get to the the middle of the decade, very metal sound. It, it, but it was like contemporary music that people right. would be listening to. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And I think that kind of comes out because I think what you get, and this is where we got to kind of step back a little bit. I think mm-hmm. is if you if you remember what was going on at the with the the comic book scene, and a lot mm-hmm. of Japanese cartoons came out of the comic books. Right. We we did like a whole 327-hour-long episode about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, we did. You had in the 70s, you had the um, uh, the Gekiga movement, 60s, right. 70s, which was the darker, the more heavy, kind of the more serious thing. Mm-hmm. The super robots kind of borrow from that because a lot of them are still, they're very dramatic. A lot of them tend to be downers because, again, the hero's dad or uncle or whoever raised him ends up like dying in mm-hmm. the first episode kind of thing. And yep, yep. And one guy always dies near the end and they never shied away from showing you the results of property damage. Mm-hmm. 
Like, it's not like a building would fall down. They'd make a point of showing you all the burning, screaming people inside. That's half the fun. Well, it was. And I think that came out of out of that, that like, Geekiga movement. Mm-hmm. When you start getting into the 80s, you've got the people who enjoyed all of that stuff, enjoyed the super robot shows. They're a right. little older. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for something with a little more, like, substance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why a show like Idian or Macross or even Gundam kind of comes out is you're having fans of the old stuff that still kind of dig the giant robot, Mm -hmm. but they can't watch like the old super robot stuff they did as a kid because it just doesn't have the same. Okay. Yeah. I see your point. Yeah. So the audience is getting older and so it's there to, it's there to appeal to that audience that has now grown up a little bit. Yeah. Hmm. Or it kind of happens accidentally because you're now getting, when you're starting to go into the 80s, you're mm-hmm. getting the guys who watched these shows in the 70s who are the ones you're starting to produce it. Right. Although a lot of the guys who are doing this, especially in the late 70s, early 80s, were actually working in the industry in the 70s too. I mean, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of them were actually children of the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of a difference there. But but I, I can see it. No, that makes sense. And I never really thought about that too much. It's very similar to how Marvel Comics was a product of the 50s in some ways, where the 50s, of course, was everything had to be kitted up because of the House Committee on whatever. Um, <laughs> and so... Damn you, Wortham. Exactly, because of the seduction <laughs> of the innocent. And so, therefore, everything was kiddified for a while, and but then the audience kind of was growing up, and so suddenly college kids were watching this... Or sorry, reading the... College kids were reading the Marvel comics, and so they're like, well, let's start having more slightly more complex stories for those college kid readers. And so things evolved. Yeah. And remember how Marvel comics happened to begin with that. Stan Lee had been writing comics for like decades and mm -hmm. he was going to quit. And his wife said, well, if you're leaving anyway, why not try something like you'd want to read? Yeah, exactly. So, and there we go. So he, uh, he let loose. And when he let loose, he actually produced something Well, he produced Spider-Man and the fantastic Mm -hmm. four. So, you know, there we go. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. oh, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I think what you're starting to see with the real robot, mm. it comes from Gundam mm. and Tomino kind of gives it. Cause remember he was kill them all Tomino. Yeah. Yeah. He already had that rep at that point. Yeah. And I think again, it might've been that Stan Lee thing that he was just kind of tired of doing the same thing over and over. So he was starting to do the kind of things that he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's like, well, we have the opportunity. Let's just do it our way. And the result was, well, the original mobile suit Gundam. Mm -hmm. Um, And one thing we shouldn't under underplay here as well that we haven't actually touched on yet. um, We did it with the super robots a bit is the model kits. Yeah. Because, Remember, when you're dealing with model kits, the more detailed, the better. Yeah, kind of. Because what you're, 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 you're getting at one of the things that kind of comes down the pike. Mm-hmm. Well, because... no, it, start short, it starts about, what, 80... It starts when, when Gundam is re-released, the original series, people, suddenly the model kits sell like hotcakes, basically. And people are like, oh my god, model kits are awesome. And uh, mecha model kits are double awesome. It's covered in chocolate. So, and they sell. And that's the important part. So suddenly the money's there. Yeah, because that's, that's kind of what saved the original Gundam. The show did okay. Mm. 
ratings wise but for the time it was expensive and and the studio was like like the the the, the money guys at the studio were like well okay whatever mm. but the model kits came out and the model kits were an absolute phenomenon yep and mind you the model kits came out with the movie re-releases where they edited the series down to three movies yeah which did fairly well with themselves but not as phenomenal as those model kits did yeah because you had you had model kits in that before mm-hmm but the focus is always on toys, and the model kits were very toyetic. Yeah. yeah uh, the, uh, the original Gundam ones came out, and they made a point of making them actually look like the things from the show. Yeah. They weren't just kind of blobs that vaguely remembered the. They were just blobs that vaguely resembled the mecha from the show. That in color, maybe had some colors and weird mm. colors. They were actually they, they actually looked in somewhat in good detail like the things from the show and that created appeal. Yep. And I would argue that that was where at least some of it um some of the impetus for doing realistic robot shows comes from the fact that you can make more model kits from them. Yep. And you saw that because what ends up happening when Idian comes out, mm-hmm. they make an ass load of model kits for Idian. Yes, they do. Uh, really the, only, the, the only catch is they don't sell really well. Mm-hmm. Um, Idian wasn't super popular. The company that did them was Aoshima mm-hmm. that did the Idian kits. Aoshima kits, they were an older company. They were still very toyetic. The kits themselves were like, they're not the best model kits ever. Mm. Like some of them are nice, but they fit together a little weird. They don't have a lot of detail mm-hmm. where the model fit kit thing really comes home again is Macross. Yeah, that's true. That well, Macross, two... Macross and one other show that we haven't mentioned that actually predates Macross. Okay. There's a, there is a realistic robot show that we're actually forgetting. And I didn't realize it until I was just looking at my you know list of uh, when they all came out, which is do Fang of the Sun okay. Dugram actually predates Macross by a year. Yeah. And I, you could argue, actually, in some ways, if you want to look at it that way, you could actually make an argument that Dugram may actually be the first realistic robot show. Yeah, I think, in a way, I think you're, uh, you could really definitely say that because it does, it does fit that, uh, fit that idea. Because Dugram, they really are just walking tanks. Like the, yeah. there is the Dugram Mac that's special, but even it looks like more like a walking tank. It doesn't actually look like it's not the most um, heroic looking mecha of all time. Like mm-hmm. they were really going out of their way to make the, all the mecha in Dugram look like tanks. And I have to wonder, um, like, yeah, really. In fact, actually, I would argue Dugram is even more realistic than Macross is. Yeah, I think when you put it that way, because I kind of see them as contemporaries. They sort of are, because let's see, Dugram get come starts October 81, okay? Mm-hmm. And Macross is, uh, just one sec here, Dugram's October 81, and Macross uh, is, where is it, October 82. So okay. it comes out a full year before. It's been on the air a full year before Macross actually airs. Right. So they're not, but here's the thing about uh, Dugram, which you already know. Dugram runs for like three years. Yeah, it's it, uh, or at least across three years, I should say. It's there's yeah. 72 episodes of it. Is it's one of actually the longest I think giant robot series there is. 
Mm -hmm. just because it was really popular at that point. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, actually, now that I think about it, it's Dugram is the one that when people are doing, and I've seen other people do retrospectives on giant robots, they always skip it. It always gets Mm -hmm. skipped. But I remember when I was a kid, the very first robot model kits I found were the Dugram model kits. Like they, Mm -hmm. they, they brought tons of them over here. And I think that's partly because I think they were selling well in Japan too. I think Dugram was in some ways maybe not a reaction, but it was coming out of the same model kit craze that Gundam uh, was either producing or part of. Yeah, I think definitely you're. I think you're right that Dugram probably really is the first real robot show, but it never kind of. It didn't quite click. You're right. Dugram is what is almost, um, I can't, I can't call it an anomaly, but it's something, it's one of those shows that the reason no one talks about it is because it just, it, it was popular in its time in a kind of average way, but it wasn't really, it didn't make the big impact that, that Macross did. Yeah. Cause Dugram, it was, again, it's popular. It had a really solid fan base. Mm-hmm. And they they did do a lot of a lot of stuff for it, but I think the two things that kind of held it back in people's minds mm-hmm. was number one, it's really slow. It is a bit because um, it's got it's got this big overarching plot, but that plot progresses really really slowly. Right. Um, we should probably explain. Do so. The the deal with Dugram is this: it basically takes place on an Earth colony planet that is mostly a desert planet and but the colony administrators are well they're dicks basically they're they're, <laughs> they're they're you know they basically have a totalitarian colony administration that may or may not be that way because the earth government wants it that way um but regard either way the local people are basically fighting for their freedom it's a freedom fighter story yeah. but it does still follow the gundam thing where they have their one uh main mecha the dugram um which, if you're a Battletech player, you would know is the Shadowhawk, the original yeah. one, anyway. Um, and they so they use the Dugram in a series of uh, guerrilla raids, basically, on um, the Earth or the on the Colony Administration forces. And it's actually it's played out as a fairly straightforward. Um, excuse me. It's played out as a fairly straightforward guerrilla warfare series. Mm-hmm. Um, in a slightly desert-ish setting. And, um, yeah, the heroes only really have the Dugram to, at least initially, to uh, help them out. And yeah. so it's an, and the enemy mecha are all really detailed and really interesting designs as well. And they go out of their way to um, give make them look like they really would work. I mean, if you've seen the original Battletech, those are the designs. Yeah. And when I say, I mean the original Battletech, we're talking pre-clans here. The one, the Basically the ones where they were all Japanese designs back in the day. Yeah. Um, most of those are Dugram. So in a lot of ways, that's the other thing I'm surprised that it wasn't brought out. They literally could have just imported Dugram as a Battletech cartoon. Well, yeah, there's, there's catches to that, though. Mm. Um, I think one of the other things that held Dugram back in Japan mm-hmm. is the animation style is still very super robot. A little bit, yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, as for bringing it out as a uh, as a BattleTech cartoon, the problem mm. that that we had was um, BattleTech did have uh, an established background. That's true, and you were, that was a little different. And the reason they used the um, the Japanese designs, they just lifted them wholeheartedly. Mm. They made a deal with a company that 
they thought had the rights, like the world rights to these different like Japanese shows and that, mm-hmm. and they didn't. Right. Yeah. And that was why a couple years into BattleTech, suddenly things are starting to be drawn a lot different. Yep. Because number one, the Japanese companies were realizing because all of their stuff in the original versions are all the the the, the fighters from the uh, Aerotech game; those are all Crusher Joe ships. Mm-hmm. And these companies started finding out and and telling FASA, "You probably shouldn't do that." And then Robotech comes out here and everybody's like, hey, half the stuff in Battletech looks really familiar now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Oh, well, they, they, they stole from the best. They just didn't realize they were stealing. They were presumably trying to do it honestly. It just didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, because again, people got to remember at this point, the Japanese stuff wasn't real known in North mm-hmm. America. And that's why anything they did bring over, they totally edited it so you'd never guess it was Japanese. Right. Well, that was the standard back in the day. Yeah. And that, that was one of the things that I think FASA was figuring why this wasn't going to be a problem because these shows weren't going to come out. Mm-hmm. And then Robotech comes out, huge interest in Japanese cartoons, tons of it starts showing up. Oops. <laughs> well, at the same time, though, I imagine thanks to Robotech, FASA made a sh- uh, a large amount of money. They, may, I, I would imagine they made a super pile of money because suddenly I know many people, including myself, probably uh, thinking back, you know, were like, oh, my God, it's a Robotech battle game. I need this. Yeah, kind of, because the uh, the interest in robots, as I recall, did uh, did well. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that interest for uh, gaming in North America got diffused mm-hmm. because Mekton came out around that time. Although it was, it, it was an indie game. It, it had a little less distribution. It, until they did Mekton 2. Mekton yes. 2 was like a mega hit. Yes, it was. That's true. And then, remember, not too long after Robotech, Palladium put out the official Robotech game. Yep. They were smart. They jumped on that license. Yeah. Hmm, yes, true. they did. Yeah, they did. Whether it was a good game or not, well, we can debate that mm, later. Well, Another time. Are... That'll be our Palladium episode. <laughs> That'll be our Palladium episode. We'll get to that then. All mm. right. So, um, so now there we go. We have now actually come up with four contenders for the uh, <laughs> for the first uh, for the first real robot show. Although it all does really come together if you want to go by fame and the one that really was the biggest influence and everything. It's Macross. Yeah, because I think when you got to Macross, you took what the other shows, the directions they were going, and that was what solidified the new formula. Yep. Pretty much. And so we kind of go from there. Um, and as I said earlier, it's kind of that hunted hero formula where a lot of them are our brave, plucky group of freedom fighters who are fighting against an evil empire and being chased around. In, mm-hmm. in fact, actually, one could argue that they got that from Star Wars also. Because mm-hmm. um, remember, Star Wars is technically that, especially if you're going to tune Star Wars into a series. Well, that's basically what you end up with, our group of yeah. heroes a group of like Jedi or that being chased around by the Empire, which is called Star Wars Rebels and just finished, actually. It was running on mm-hmm. the, the Disney XD or whatever. Um, so even Disney's now done that. So there we go. There it is. Unless you want to say they all got it from uh, Message in Space instead. There's that, but Message in Space was a Star Wars ripoff. Well, as I recall, it, it originally wasn't because it was... Uh... It was almost done before Star Wars came out, and then Star Wars came out, and they said, Nit, Star Wars this up. Yeah, that I believe, yeah. 
Well, because Message from Space is a science fiction up version of, uh, was it the, is it, is it the Hekenden? I think it is. There's this story about the, these like eight warriors that receive each get a magic bead that's supposed to represent the fact that they're all rebo- reborn, basically. Mm-hmm. And so they all show up to help a princess at this like time in Japanese history. It's a Japanese science, it's a Japanese fantasy novel that was super popular at one point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, I think it's the Hekenden. And yeah. um, so anyway, so that's where Message from Space comes from. It's actually a sci- science fiction Star Wars up version of that is what it is. Yeah. With a heavy dose of Star Wars. Yeah. But even Gundam is a heavy dose of Star Wars. So either way. So anyway, so there's a lot going back and <laughs> forth. Like the Japanese are boring a lot for American stuff in many different ways. Yeah. Um, then, now, this is not to put down the Japanese or I'm not calling them a bunch of ripoff artists. Some they're doing their own thing. They're taking their own um, angles with a lot of this, but they definitely are being inspired. And there's some homages to uh, American stuff. Well, there's that, and remember, you're also um, you're also going to get a lot of parallel development because a mm-hmm. lot of um, mm-hmm. what's happening in one country on Earth happens in a lot of them. Hmm. And you get a lot of the similar attitude and similar perspective, especially by the time you're getting to the 80s, because uh, global communication is such an established thing. Right. Yeah, that's true. So a lot of the political ideas that happen in one place happen everywhere. And then mm-hmm. that affects like your pop culture. Well, we should probably get moving on. So uh, what would you say is the next? Because there's a bunch of series that come out, okay? And after, you know, at this point, it's like, wow, if you we make a series like this, we can sell a ton of model kits or vice versa. That synergy has been revealed. And so they're making lots of this stuff. Okay. Yeah, now there's, there's something else I want to add. Okay. Because there's a, this is what we were talking about, how we're, some of the stuff we we're going to bring up in the show. There's a weird connection to Canada that kind of ties in at this point. Okay. Please and explain. I've, men- I've mentioned this before. Um, what would happen is because of Gundam, because the model kits did so well, that became a big part of the marketing for your show. Mm-hmm. It used to be toys. Mm-hmm. The model kit thing became sort of the next thing. And I think part of that might be too that your audience was getting older. Yes, Definitely. So the model kits were a way to hang on to these people as they became teenagers and young adults. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd produce a show, you'd produce all kinds of toys and tie-ins. They'd sell while the show was on. Once the show was done, they'd kind of interest would peter out quickly. Mm, usually, yeah. You had a metric shit ton of these things left, and what they would do is they would dump them overseas. Yep. Yeah, I mean, he's referring to the model kits, folks. He's he's yep. basically saying, yeah, they had all their once the show was done and they didn't need the model kits anymore. It's like, well, what do we do with all these kits? Well, send them to Canada. Well, and and that was it. Canada, it, same thing with the toys. Mm-hmm. And they'd package up a bunch and they'd sell them to different like warehouse distributors and that that would sell them to like little mom and pop shops or whatever. Because mm-hmm. when I was a little kid, and we're talking grade six, grade seven. We started getting tons and tons of like model robots from Japan, and they were dirt cheap. Mm, yeah, two or three bucks each. Yeah, like literally two or three bucks, and it was because yeah, they—they was buying them. Yeah, they—they they were so mass producing these things to capitalize while they could. That yeah, they, you'd end up with just 
I, I believe metric shit ton is the only measurement that really stresses how yes. much of this stuff you'd have. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they were everywhere from mom and pop stores to the Hudson's Bay or the Bay or whatever it's called this week. And mm. um, the Eaton Center in downtown Toronto is where I bought my first Macross model kits. I mean, they were everywhere. Yep. And I can remember there were two places that I used to like to go to find weird stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Because they were distributors, and one of them was uh, Mr. Gainsway's Ark in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And here in Windsor, we had Maple Leaf Importing, mm-hmm. which was literally, at, at this time, it was a warehouse that they would buy crates of these whatevers from wherever, and you'd just go in and poke through these crates, and you'd find, like, hundreds of model kits in a big giant wooden box, and he'd sell them for super cheap. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, like, when I was a kid, model robots were currency. They were mm. like cigarettes in prison. Right. Like, like I've got model kits right now sitting on the shelf I'm looking at that I kid you not, nine different people have owned this model kit. It just got passed around her, the group so many times. But which person actually put it together? The first one? Sometimes. Because we all built them. And this is one of the reasons why um, mm-hmm. for our role-playing games and we got into things like Mechton and Battle Tech because we used to use the model kits as playing pieces. Mm-hmm. And then you'd run them all through the house or all through your backyard or wherever, and you'd adjust the scale and, and movement rules accordingly. Mm-hmm. Playing in the kitchen of the gods. Or the house. Something like it'd be the whole house. And that's one of the yeah. reasons why all of my model robots are between five and seven inches high. You purposely got them at that scale. Yep. Okay. And it would be it would be different. Like for a Gundam model, that's one one four four. For a Macross, it's one one hundred. Mm-hmm. For a super robot, it's usually one two fifty or one four hundred, depending on the robot. Mm. But it was so that you could stand them all next to each other, and they didn't look too out of place. Right, right, that makes sense. And this was the thing that got us interested in in this because we found out grade eight, grade nine. Mm-hmm. Wait, there are shows, <laughs> and right. this is how we ended up making contact with people who knew people in Japan, and we started trading tapes. For all these different weird-ass shows we kept hearing about. Wait, so that would have been pre-Robotech then? Yeah, it was. And you were already trading tapes at that point? Yeah. Yeah, wow. we we started in probably 82, 83. Okay. Wow. That's pretty early. Yeah, and I, and I remember it because when Robotech takes off, mm-hmm. a lot of the... There were guys who had already been fans of this stuff for years. Mm-hmm. And we're already kind of resentful of, like, the job they did on Macross because they'd seen mm. the original. And right, yeah. The der- the derogatory term for people who were just coming into the into the, the hobby mm-hmm. was, they, they'd call them robotikes. Robotikes, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, it was because, like, we'd already been into this stuff for a few years before all that started happening. But we, mm. again, the Robotech thing kind of blew us away because that was the first time we got something we could follow. Right, yeah. Prior to that, it was all in Japanese and no subtitles. Or French, because some of the stuff ended up in the French, like, especially, like, the the, uh, 70s stuff. Yeah, but that was all super robot stuff. I mean, the, a lot of the real robot stuff I noticed, I don't think really aired in France. Like, they didn't seem to quite take to it. Like, they took to the super robot stuff like crazy. But when the real Mm. robot stuff came around, I don't think a lot of this was ever dubbed in French. Uh, Some of it was uh you're right that it 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 wasn't as much Mm. and i think part of it was because um one of the things that happens 
when you're going into the 80s and you're getting to the real robot thing hmm. was that Japan for the longest time was where everybody on Earth farmed out their cartoons to. Right, yeah. And they worked pretty cheap. And because of that, this is how they could produce like stuff like on the Macross level for television. Hmm. Because they had so much practice and their their industry was so huge and developed. And when you start getting into the 80s and that, they're looking at worldwide distribution mm-hmm. and they're starting to, to to hang on to their licenses. Right. Like they used to, one of the reasons you'd see them in like French and that, and if, if you remember the earliest days of VHS, mm-hmm. a lot of um, a lot of like the super robot stuff would get released here in a, in a hastily dubbed English version. Usually dubbed by three people. Yep, same thing for people out in uh, out in BC. Yeah, so, <laughs> and and the thing the thing with that was because the company in Japan figured, well, we made our money. We're mm-hmm. we're not going to sell it. Well, if they want it, then hell with it. Just sell it to them for cheap. Yeah, and they'd make a couple bucks, and then it would come here. Mm-hmm. But then when you got to like like I say after after Gundam, mm. they're putting more effort. They're putting more money into it, and yeah, they're hanging on to the rights. And I think they're starting to see. The potential for worldwide distribution. Mm, makes sense. Because I can remember after Robotech, mm-hmm. the uh, cheap model kit thing kind of dried up around here. Right, because suddenly they were worth something. Yeah, and suddenly what was happening was um, the companies that were sending them here from Japan weren't sending them through these like 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 uh, warehouse distributors. Well, I think there was something else going on. Remember, in Japan at that point, uh, we're talking mid-80s, because Robotech aired in 85. Um, what's happened is the model kit craze has continued, and they've discovered that even once the show is off the air, people will still buy the model kits for it, especially yeah. if they are if they like that show or it's nostalgic, and they could reissue some of them, etc. So suddenly they're not trying to get rid of them at the end of each toy season. They're yeah. actually keeping them around because you know there's collectors are appearing who want this stuff. Yeah, that was another thing that Gundam started. Hmm. Because what happened when the show was done, uh, they did the Mobile Suit Variant series, mm-hmm. which were uh, robots that didn't show up in any episode, but they were stuff that made sense given the setting. Right, yeah. And then that lent a little bit more of uh, a proper logical, technological edge, because you'd get stuff like um, the the Zack was the basic uh, Zeon mm-hmm. mech, and you'd get like an artillery zack. Right. And you'd get like the underwater version. You'd get like a deep space version and a desert version. And it was mm. it was things that weren't in the show. They made sense in the show. Right. And they were they were newer they were they were newer ideas that kept the franchise alive. Right, yeah, yeah. Plus the mobile suit variations, I believe, were the first um super detailed uh, robot model kits that came out that would make sense yeah because they were just built as model kits they weren't built yeah. as uh just off the toys or, any, or, or sorry off the toys or off the show they were built as model kits so they put a lot of effort into them for collectors yeah. right yeah because that was the thing when you got to uh when you got to macross the model kits were a big part of it mm. like the dugram ones they looked nice they looked like the show but they they were pretty simple. Yep. Whereas the Macross ones were starting to do like a lot of detail, a lot of posability. Hmm. And they started doing upscale kits. Yep. 
So you could get like the 175 scale ones, which would be like a foot tall. Wow. And have like a bajillion joints and, and mm. extra detailing and all that kind of thing. And that was kind of where I that started. Mm. Which is again why I say Macross is kind of, it, it, it may not be the first super, like a first real robot show, but it does, I'd still maintain, it's the one where it all kind of gelled into this is how you do it. Right. Okay. And it started a trend. I mean, a lot of stuff came afterwards. Uh, we should probably start moving a little forward in time. We're still sitting at the beginning of the 80s, <laughs> and I think we're almost an hour in. So let's start moving a little forward. Yeah. So the next, well, I would argue, now you can you can debate this with me if you want, um, the next significant robot show that would come out, I would argue, is Armor Trooper Votoms in 83. Yeah, I think there's uh, there's two more mm-hmm. in 83 that are... They're weird asides, but yeah, I do think Votoms is probably the next step. Because Votoms, this is the trick with Votoms. Votoms is the very first mecha series where the hero doesn't actually have his own mech. Like, mm-hmm. he goes through mechs like suits of clothes. And I, he really <laughs> yeah. does. He, he literally uses whatever is available, which, okay, I should explain Votoms. Votoms is set in a uh, far future setting um where humans went across spread across the galaxy and then a galaxy-wide war broke out that literally lasted hundreds of years Mm. and so what's happened is all these human plants are at war with each other and then it actually takes place at the end of the war because what's happened is is the war is actually about to end and the main character Chiriko Kuvi, I believe his name is Mm. uh he's involved with this last special operation which basically turns out to be a uh, scam because the war is about to be ended. So a bunch of the generals basically put together this special operation to steal a whole bunch of gold, basically invaluables from this one planet that they're going to use to set themselves up once the war is over because they know it's about to end. And so he's involved in this mission. He's just one of the grunts that they take along with him. And he kind of realizes that something's wrong here. So they basically backstab him, shoot him and leave him to die. Hmm. And um, so, in a in a way, Votoms is kind of the Count of Monte Cristo, where we've mm. got that we've got the character who is wronged by a group of powerful people and is now determined to fight his way back and get his revenge. But a lot of it is about him actually being a mercenary, and they all they use these armored troopers, which are basically, they're mechs, but yeah. they're probably some of the most realistic real robots ever produced because they're basically just slightly oversized power armor. They're not yeah. like a 30-foot-tall Gundam. They're only about, I think they're about 12 feet tall. Maybe 10 or, ten or maybe about 12, I yeah. think. It, or, it, or, it depends on the model, but I think, yeah, probably 12 to 15. So they're yeah. almost as realistic as you're going to get um, mm. and with mecha shows. I mean, short of actually just plain old powered armor, they're probably yeah. the closest you're going to get. And and so, yeah, he there they have dozens and dozens of these like armored trooper units mm-hmm. and uh he he pilots different ones and now there are some fantastical elements to it he meets like a i think they're called psycho soldiers like it's they get it and he meets this woman during his initial during the initial mission who is actually a um i guess it's, it's, should i tell this is spoiling things but he meets he meets a very strange woman during the during the <laughs> original uh during the original mission that turns out to kind of be a super soldier character. Yeah, they just generally call her a phantom girl, isn't it? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah. And um, she pilots the brutish dog. 
Yep. Which is, they all have very colorful names for all the armored troopers, but they are, yeah. So as I said, it, it takes Macross one step further. Macross, the main hero, still had his heroic, um, just slightly customized, you know, tr- uh, mecha that he piloted. Whereas in Votoms, I don't think he does. I think he's got a, a particular type of machine that he likes that he likes using, but he doesn't actually have a particular unit. Kind, yeah, basically, he's usually pilots some variant of a scope dog. Yeah, he's piloting scope dogs, but he's piloting, but it's like you know, driving a Trans Am. It's not just it's not yeah. his Trans Am. Like, well, it's he, like driving a truck, or, or yeah, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, he's he's driving anyway. So, so yes, he's basically piloting his preferred model, but he's not piloting a particular unit of that yeah. model because uh, he goes through a number of them during the series, I believe. Um, I'm if yeah. if I'm wrong, you can correct me. I've only seen some of the series, but uh, so it's a pretty hardcore war series. Um, it's pretty dark. Like I mean, it's actually kind of cyberpunkish. I mean, if if that's your kind of thing, Votoms is the series for you. It really is. Yeah. I, th- I think you're starting to see, too, with mm. uh, Votoms, this idea that the robots are ever-present, mm. but they're almost not an element of the story. Like, right. It's like you say, it's like hopping in a car or picking up a rifle. They're, they're, they're always there, mm. but everybody in the setting is just kind of so uh, climatized to them. They're not a fantastic element anymore. No, they're not a special element at all. They're literally just like a car or a gun or a tank or something like that. They're just a background element that yeah. they just use in their fight. Because I, I think you've hit when when you, you said it was it's essentially a cyberpunk story. Mm. Because what you're going to see as as the decade goes on is you see a lot of stuff that people will call a giant like like a giant robot show or a robot show mm. that it kind of isn't. It's just a sci-fi setting that happens to have robots in it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, especially with Gundam and Macross, they started that, but that continues to be the way. It's not always the way, though. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. a number of... There's almost two lines. There's the ones that are the sci-fi stories that just happen to have robots in them, and then Mm -hmm. there's the ones that really are just there to sell toy robots. Well, they kind of both are, because... If you think like uh, Macross and Votoms had insane amounts of like model kits and toys yep. produced. Yep. But, but I... get... sorry, oh, but I was going to argue, but I would argue there's some like, uh, for example, Dorvac, which mm. if I remember right, was literally produced to sell model kits. I remember mm. hearing that that one literally they, it was commissioned by the model kit company, um, which mm. is why it has very nice animation. Um, and you're also going to get, uh, what is it? Oh, Mospita. Genesis Climber Mospita in 83 mm. also is a show that I would argue is heavily there to sell like the, the model kits, the mecha do have to be featured in every episode because that's kind of the thing, the selling point of the show. Yeah. But there's, there's a catch to that though. Cause Mospita different in that they didn't actually produce that much like merchandise off of it, which mm. part, partly might've been, been because it wasn't super popular yeah, I think that was mostly it, yeah. But the thing was, the mechs were featured just because they put so much effort into them. Like the uh, like the ride armor, mm. uh, what they call the Cyclone here in the Robotech version. They took like six months to design it because they wanted something that would actually transform and, and work how it would work if it was real. Yeah. 
And they did and a that, great job. They did. And that wasn't for a toy company or a model kit company. That was just what they wanted to do. Yeah. Like this was something you're kind of starting to see uh, as well, mm-hmm. that a lot of these shows are, are, are being produced mm-hmm. first and then the merch comes after. Right. Well, like I said, there's a mix because Dorvac was the yeah. opposite. But usually and, you're right. And there's there's a mix to the different things too because I think, um, like you were saying, Macross mm-hmm. was a giant robot sci-fi show. Right. Dorvac was a sci-fi show that happened to have robots in it. Mm. It's it's not an imp- like a major distinction and it's, it's, it's a very fine line. But mm-hmm. I think, again, you're kind of starting to see those ideas. Right. That the amount of robot in the show is starting to vary Mm. that people aren't it's not like if you were doing a super robot show you had a goddamn robot in that and it was the hero and it was going to be featured every episode and that's just how it is right you're kind of getting away from that now a bit i yeah they definitely are they're leading you know the super robot shows are kind of fading at this point i mean there's still some uh yeah you know, Go Lion comes out in 81. Um, there's a few. God Mars is 81 as well. Again, okay, but as as things goes on, go on, although I would argue a lot of these shows still do have that formula, and even Zeta Gundam, and we'll do this later on, where it literally is every episode is really just still about the mech fight of the episode. And that's what I was getting at, where yep. there's... There's shows that are about the characters, and then there are shows that are basically just about the mech fight of the episode. And they are a bit different from each other. Yeah, and, and even if they do have a mech fight every episode, they're still kind of um They're there's still I think the the the, the Votoms and Macross are kind of a, a useful distinction. Because mm. they'll play out differently, because you're starting they to will. get shows shows now where the mech fight starts. Mm-hmm. And the whole mech fight is, you'll see like a quick cut of a couple shots being fired. Then it's the hero and villain yelling at each other in the cockpit of their mech. Because it's more about the confrontation between the characters exactly. than the mech fight. Exactly, yeah. And I think you... that's, a, that, that's a distinction though. I mean, for example, when we get yeah. L-Game, Galliant, uh, SPT, Lasner, for example. We're still, we're looking at shows that are just basically there to sell you know, they sell robot toys for the most part. That is still their reason for existence. And the fact that they're a drama on top of that is an extra that they squeeze in in between the robot fights. Yeah, there, there's a catch to that too, because you've mentioned two. Mm-hmm. Well, you've mentioned one that I think is an interesting aside. Okay. Because you mentioned Dorvac. Mm. Dorvac is one of those things that it was, it was, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the company. The, the model kit company wanted something to, to sell. Mm-hmm. And what Dorvac is mostly known for is uh, Makoto Kobayashi, mm-hmm. who was like a uh, uh, designer, model kit builder guy. Right. Who did these incredibly detailed, super realistic buildups of like the Dorvac kits. Mm-hmm. And I think the only reason anybody remembers Dorvac is because of his model kits. Okay, that that makes sense. Like they did, there was a booklet that came with them that featured these scenes and that that he he built up, and and mm-hmm. they were astounding. Right. Like I think this is also where you're starting to get the super realistic model kit ideas coming out. I mm-hmm. think in a lot of ways from him and from those Dorvac uh, pamphlets. Okay. 
I can see that. Well, a lot of the, some of the Dorvac things did end up as being part of the Transformers lines or uh, they released them as deluxe Autobots and things. Uh, so some people, if you see them, you'll be familiar with them. But yeah, they were just Dorvac uh, units for the most part. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, and so, but Dorvac is an interesting show, but it was, again, one of those ones that's just famous for more of its kits than anything else. And like I said, it was... Yeah. specifically the ones that guy built <laughs> like that's what it's yeah. known for and then uh, oh around this time too there's another show that i think becomes more noteworthy in mm-hmm. in the path of history okay and that is or a battler dunbine interesting why uh dunbine is another one that it, it uh at the time they put out super incredibly detailed model kits for mm. But Dunbine is kind of, um, it, for following the Indian thing, it's very super robot, right? but realistic up. We should explain. Okay, Dunbine is what a uh, modern audience would call an isekai story, or basically where a hero from our world ends up in another world, in this case a fantasy world that's D&D-esque, but they use mecha to fight each other. They use these giant bug-ish robot mecha things that are powered by your uh, magic aura basically mm-hmm. and so he proceeds to join the i believe they're again the usual group of rebels fighting against the evil empire and yep. <laughs> um and then they go off and they do the usual hunted hero thing where they run around and have fights every episode is every episode is some lieutenant finds them they have a ship basically they travel around with their mecha and they get attacked every episode and they fight and they make friends and they with people they aren't fighting sometimes the people they are Mm-hmm. And um, then might is an interesting twist, though. Later on, there's a certain point where they actually come to our world. Yeah. Um, and they discover the damnedest thing. that Things from that other world, when they come to our world, basically end up are super-powered. Mm-hmm. And so, this is a tiny bit of a spoiler, but whatever. So they discover that, for example, a can- what's considered a normal cannon shot from one of these mecha in the magic world, which is Bison Well. Bison Well, it's called. If you fire that shot in our world, it's like it's like you shot off a nuclear missile. Like they're literally capable of wiping out whole cities just with a few shots if they want. Yeah, and so it's kind of, it gets really nasty really fast once they end up in our world. Mm-hmm. And um, but then by it's mostly known for yeah being the original fantasy quote unquote real robot show. Yeah, because the idea of the uh, the the mechs and that one is they're powered by like your spiritual energy that that's why they're called aura battlers yep exactly so there really are extensions of you which is how they're usually treated in almost every show anyway but yeah they but you know this time they actually have a reason Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and um now this is also 83 since i'm since we're here i'm going to mention one of my personal favorites from 83 which is vifam okay um, this is Vifam again is just another hunted hero story. Vifam, um, is one where again, it's a colony planet. The colony planet gets attacked. The heroes who literally are a group of elementary school kids end up on this ship, um, fleeing basically this one last ship, fleeing the planet, fleeing the colony planet, which happens to have a couple robot, you know, mechs on board. And, mm. um, so they... Yeah, they naturally speaking, they end up piloting these mechs and in there they're just trying to escape and the adults start dying off fairly quickly. So we end up fairly quickly in a situation where there's a bunch of elementary school kids doing their best to pilot a ship and 
get away from the enemy that are that are just kind of trying to wipe out i don't think all humanity they're not aliens if i remember they're other humans Mm -hmm. but um and it's really really tragic (laughs) (laughs) it's i don't think it was done by tomino but it might as well have been because Uh yep because very quickly you know once they run out of adults to kill they start killing off the kids and it's pretty nasty but it's also very cool in a way too it's oddly upbeat for how nasty it is yeah, that's that's kind of sounds like Tom. I think Tomono was the first guy to ever like brutally murder children in a uh, Japanese uh, robot cartoon. Yeah, I I I, I would give Tomono that uh, distinction. That doesn't surprise me. Well, I'm thinking there's a scene in Idian mm-hmm. where there's this group of kids because the ship's full of civilians and their ship has come under attack. It's it's mm-hmm. in the uh, the second movie, which is kind of the real ending of the show. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where the one character is hiding behind the counter and she's firing the rifle and she's trying to keep the kids like under control and they're panicking. And you see the one kid look up and a shot comes right at him. And then the next thing you see is like his headless body still kind of wandering around because it doesn't realize it's dead yet. <laughs> like, yikes. Yeah, actually, they would effectively remake Fifam in some aspects later on and call it Victory Gundam. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> Victory Gundam is a uh, victory gun is oh, again one of my favorite i i think i guess i like a thing for kids and mechs for some reason because victory <laughs> gundam is actually also one of my favorites as well i've watched victory gundam through more than once mm-hmm. um but yeah victory gundam especially to, especially later on gets pretty nasty um oh mm-hmm. i just did a little quick check vifam was conceived of by yoshiyuki tomino yeah, there and it directed is. by Takeyuki Kanada. So, yeah, he definitely intended to um, <laughs> use this uh, as another body count show. Though it looks like he didn't actually direct it or produce it, though. Yeah, he he just showed up in the studio once, looked at the design, and said, "Do you really need all these kids?" Exactly. Like, really? Well, yeah. they did the usual, which is there's a there's like a really big cast, and then they hmm. solved the problem of that really big cast by getting rid of them. Um, so yeah, actually he was drafted by Yoshiyuki Tomino. There we go. Okay. Um, and also planned. So he basically wrote the rough outline for the story, which means, yeah, he, you know, he made sure he put some deaths in there. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> actually here, I'm going to say, because I don't think I've ever said it on the show, okay, Victory Gundam. I'm going to tell the audience about my favorite moment from Victory Gundam. The one that's... Okay. Pre- you you know what I'm going to say. So there's this episode where the main character, the Gundam pilot, is... Um, his his mother was involved in the war, and his mother's been kidnapped at one point uh, by the bad guys. And so they, they actually mount a rescue operation to save her. And the bad guys try to hold her hostage. And... The hero does his thing. He's like, Uso Ebbing is his name. He's like 13 years old. Attacks the main bad guy and such. And the mother gets gets tossed aside or something. There's an explosion anyway. And so one of the next shots we see is well, he's standing in the, their main hero ship on the deck. And he's standing alone holding this helmet. And the rest of the cast walk up to him. And, and they, they're like, Uso, what happened? What's wrong? And he turns around, and he and you see that the helmet is upside down, and he holds yeah. out the helmet, and he says, "Mother," and they look at the helmet, and it's her head. Mm-hmm. It's her severed head. He's crying over her severed head in the helmet. Yeah, that's Victory Gundam. 
And that moment still, if you ever watch it, that moment will haunt you. It really will. It's that I'm, I don't, I'm not even doing it justice the way I describe it. Yeah. And that's not even like, well, it's, it's that, up that there, to but... me. That was the worst. That was okay. It might not be idiot level stuff, but it's, it's pretty bad. It is. Yo, no, I was going to say victory Gundam has so many scenes that are like that level of depressing though. Yeah, it does actually. It's it, I would argue it's much worse than Vifam. Vifam, mm-hmm. they go through a couple kids, but victory Gundam again, another ship crewed by kids. Yeah. They go through a lot of characters. That show is just a meat grinder. Yeah. Um, it's like yeah. game of Thrones level there. That's, yeah, it it really is. It really is. Anyway, and it has, has such an upbeat opening too. Yeah, I know. Wieners forever, <laughs> which is one of my favorite. Wieners forever. Oh. It's, it's supposed to be winners forever, but the way the Japanese singer pronounces it, it's wieners forever. Wieners yeah, there's forever. That's that's not even the best example I think though of that sort of uh, language. Kind of uh, that's not quite what that means, sort of thing. No, I believe it. What would you be your favorite? Uh, my favorite would be the uh, opening theme for uh, Tobikage. Okay. I've never Rub seen it. Rub Survivor. Repeat that? Rub Survivor. <laughs> Rub Survivor. Yeah, because they, 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 that's... Yeah, you've seen Tobikage. I've seen like the first episode or two of it, yeah. Yeah, and that's the theme song. It's supposed to be Love Survivor, and that's what it subtitles in English. But the guy singing it has a heavy accent. It sounds like he's constantly talking about Rub Survivor. Rub Survivor. Being a Gona Guy fan, hearing that coming out of a Japanese cartoon kind of implies all kinds of different things. But All right, so we don't want to be here all night, so let's continue on our little journey. Okay, so we've had had our um, moment. Disturbing moment. Disturbing moment discussion, yeah. Um, Yeah. Yep. Anyway, so let's <laughs> let's continue on. Okay. So okay. Yeah. Um, so what would you say the next major influential mecha series was? Because again, there are a bunch of them, but what would be the next big one for the list? Do you think? Oh man, for me, it there. I can think of two, mm-hmm. depending on how loosely you want to define mecha. Okay. Because I find what's happened, like at least for me on the user end of all Mm -hmm. of these shows Mm -hmm. you've kind of the real robots kind of get into a rhythm Mm -hmm. and there's so many shows that are slight derivations from one of the established themes or kind of um start like a new theme but you can kind of see where it's kind of coming from right and that's and sorry to just interrupt for a second. And that's why, folks, we might not mention your favorite, you know, mecha show. And it's not because we're dissing it. It's actually because a lot of them are variations on the theme. It's just like the super robot stuff. Yeah. Like, there's there's tons of them that I absolutely love, but they're mm. not noteworthy in the history of, of the genre. Right. And I agree. Yeah, the, the next ones that I would say were really... Depending on if, if you define like a mecha show a little looser, mm-hmm. I would go with Bubblegum Crisis. Ah, interesting choice in 87. Well, 87 yeah. to 91. Um, okay. And yes, you are being a little loose with it because that, that's a pure power armor show, not exactly a mecha show, but okay. No, they, they have mechs. Oh, they, actually, that's true. I forgot. They do, do don't they? 
Yep, the heroes have the motor slaves, and remember the ADP have like the K11 and the K12. Yep. <laughs> anyway. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, yes. Okay. On that sense, I would agree with you. There are mm-hmm. the, um, yeah. Okay. Bubblegum Crisis would count. I agree. Yeah. And it's, it's another thing, too, that what happens in the early 80s that really helps the Japanese animation industry is uh, the uh, OVA. Mm hmm. Which uh, is the original video animation. Yep. Yeah, there's a certain point in the mid-80s where suddenly it becomes profitable to actually just release a series direct-to-video, direct-to-video cassette in this case, of course. And uh, so suddenly we start to see the OVAs, and the OVA market pops up um, and uh, does actually reasonably well. If I remember, was it, I think the first Mecha OVA was... um, Megazone 23. Yeah, officially. Um, There was another one. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard to peg down what the first one was. Um, Most of the listings I see say it was uh, uh, Tezuka with a uh, uh, green cat. Okay. Um, I don't know that one, but I, I, I'll bow to your, uh, your encyclopedic knowledge. Okay, because one of the first ones I can remember... Mm-hmm was uh oh shoot what the hell is it called time stranger etranger yeah that was a movie though that wasn't no av that was a movie but they did i think they did oavs of it well no because remember that is actually oh that's um because it continues that, a tv series yeah it's, it's that is continuing go shogun okay yeah and go shogun though is this weird slightly it's not exactly humorous but it's kind of like kind of balances a little bit campy on purpose show like it's it's mostly a super robot show and then with the because i love that movie actually the the ghost Shogun movie though is this weird existential super serious film mm-hmm. um which i love it's actually really well done it's a it's, it's a work of art it really is and I'd never even watched the show when I watched the movie. It's like, it it's so different. It doesn't even really belong with the actual movie. You just need to understand the idea that what you're looking at are these retired heroes. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of what it's about. It's about what happens to the heroes after the show is over and after they retire. And so, okay. Um, I could see that. Because um, I thought there was videos. Because there was a lot of the early uh, OVAs were either remakes or continuations of uh, older shows. Well, no, not necessarily. They I mean they a number of them were actually um, were actually originals. I mean, for example, there was uh, Hades Project Zeromer was one yeah. that came out during that time. Um, what else? Oh, there were some other ones. Zeromer was at OAV. Bogum Crisis was, although Zeromer would come out in like the mid '80s, whereas Bogum Crisis, as I noted, isn't until uh, towards the end of the '80s. Yeah, it's like '86, '87. Um, yeah, exactly. Megazone Twenty Three was '85. Because um, uh, remember, there's, there, oh, Gunbuster. I think Gunbuster. Yeah, Gunbuster was released as OAVs, if I remember yeah. right, as well, and that was '88. Yeah. Uh, there's the Starship Troopers OAVs. Um, so there were a number of OAVs that, and it was the area where people, they were experimenting. They usually had better quality animation. Some of them were meant to be pilots for TV series. Some of them were just meant to be their own thing. I mean, OAVs were a new thing. Like it was just in Japan, it was just like it was here in the States or, and in Canada 
where suddenly you know, everyone had a video cassette player and people were buying video cassettes like crazy. So people started producing original content for them, not just movies. Yeah, it was Netflix. Kind of, yeah. Because there was, because remember, it wasn't just like the the giant robot stuff. Mm-hmm. They did uh, like OAVs for for everything, like yes. every genre, every audience. There was just like tons of them, and that was something that again kept the animation industry, I think, going in Japan because you could start because I didn't have to commit to like fifty episodes or something. Mm. I could do like a one hour thing. Right. And I could make I could make money off of it. I could put a little extra into it. There was enough of an audience for this stuff that they became self perpetuating. Right. I would argue, I would know that they weren't always that short. Um, Legend of the Galactic Heroes uh, was is 110 episodes, and it was all done as OAVs in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, and but a lot. Most of them were 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 fairly. We're oh, fairly short. Most of them are only a couple, one or even a, a hand, literally six episodes was the average length for an OAV quote unquote series. That was yeah. it. That's all they could usually afford to do because, again, limited market. They weren't sure how far it was going to go. Um, yeah. And they didn't know what would happen with it. And there were some, like, uh, for example, MD Geist, for example, that the Japanese, it came out, no one cared. And then when they brought it over in the States, everyone went nuts for it. Yeah. So that was the weird thing. Black Magic M sixty six. There's another one. Um, oh, and of course the classic Mecha one, um, Metal Skin Panic Maddox XO one. Yeah, which is another one of my favorites. Yep. Because um, this is this classic. is the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the other thing that's happening too. Is that this is post Robotech here, mm-hmm. and the Japanese stuff is starting to make its way over. Right. Like like there's official releases, but. Remember, like, a, a Japanese VCR was on the same... It was the same setup as, like, a, a North American one. So you could take a Japanese videotape and play it in your VCR. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's no region encoding. Yeah, and, and it was the same setup. It wasn't like the, the Brits had their PAL, which operates at, like, a different frame count and blah, blah, right. blah. Right, yeah, yeah. So you were starting to get that, and because of Robotech, everybody knew Robotech was Japanese. The Japanese stuff, as Japanese stuff, was coming over, and that was... That was again, I think, um, mm-hmm. good and bad because the uh, the the companies in Japan were seeing new markets. Mm-hmm. We were seeing new material, right? Um, but the thing is, uh, the videos themselves, the proper releases, were still prohibitively expensive. Mm. Oh yeah, when the videos first came out, like I remember buying the first episodes of Bubblegum Crisis. I bought them at my local comic store individually, and you'll understand why in a second. Um, and I, they were like 45 bucks a pop yeah. and that was for a single half hour episode. Yeah. 45 bucks. I mean, I actually, my comic shop owner let me pay it off in installments because mm. I'd been going there for years. So he trusted me and he knew me. Um, this is back in the days when a comic book was still less than $2. And, this, yeah. and so for a half hour video, I was paying 45 bucks, but you know, it was Japanese and everything. So damn it, I was going to do it. Well, and that was, that was kind of the only way to get some of it if you didn't know people you could trade with because even in japan they were prohibitively expensive that 40 dollar bubblegum crisis uh vhs in japan would sell for like 100 120 bucks well because that that was the thing um Mm -hmm. in japan the reason they took off was because you had places you could rent them Mm. and here in north america we didn't get the ability to rent japanese stuff until kind of 
near the end of the VHS uh, Japanese 80s animation boom. Yeah, it was. we were well into the 90s before we really had much of a selection for rentals, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, eventually yeah. we would, but it would take a little while before it kind of came around. And the yeah. nice thing about the OAVs were they let the animation designers, especially mecha designers, experiment. Like they were able to try different things and they tried yeah. a lot of different combinations that normally wouldn't work for TV. But if you're just doing a couple episodes of something and you know you can sell you know, model kits from it and such, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. And so they did weird things like Metal Skin Panic, Maddox, as we mentioned, and uh, Dominion yeah. Tank Police, and lots of others. And Gunbuster was part of that too, which we mentioned last yeah. year. All right, so let's be moving on then. Um, so the next real robot show that was probably of uh, any importance, I would argue, since we're at the late 80s now, would be Pat Labor. Yeah, that's that's probably the next big jump for the genre i would agree and pat labor is again another one of those ones i'd say oddly enough i'd say it belongs in the votoms line um where Mm. it's very realistic for the most part the labors are a bit bigger than the votom suits but a quick quick rundown in pat labor what's happening is they're basically rebuilding uh tokyo well they're expanding tokyo so they build these construction mechs to actually make loading easier and they call them labors and so they also decide, because eventually, of course, when you've got enough of these things around, people start using them for crime. So they decide, mm-hmm. okay, well, we'll create a special police division unit, actually two police division units, that are <laughs> going to exist to basically deal with it. People, when they kind of use one of these things for crime or when they go out of control, we'll send these guys in to deal with them. And those are the patrol labors or pat labors. Um, yeah. And so they have two units which each of them only has, I think, like two labors, two, maybe three labors each, if I remember right. Yeah. And so there's not very many of them. And the interesting thing about Pat Labor is it's almost entirely character-driven. Um, mm-hmm. It's basically about Section 2, which are the, quote-unquote, misfit and loser section, of course, Section 1 being the heroic <laughs> you know, section that everyone actually cares about. Um, and so this is the misfit and loser section run by a girl named noah who's like a mecca um afikando and her her met her pat labor alphonse and mm-hmm. um that it it became super popular but partly because i would argue that if i were going to say top 10 greatest anime of all time period ever pat labor would not be on that list um yeah the tv show yeah. i would definitely say I actually, the videos are more mm-hmm. typical i they, they were nice but they were kind of like Kind of because the TV series, the the big running thing in the TV show was that these robots were so new and expensive. Mm. There wasn't that much labor crime. So the the heroes kind of had to find stuff to do. Yep, I would agree. Well, they're actually different continuities because they did the OAVs first, the original OAVs. And then mm. they were and then they did the movie, which was done by Mamoru Oshii. Yeah. Did yeah. them and the one everybody's nuts for. He would become later popular for Ghost in the Shell, but anyway, he was the guy behind Pat Labor too. And so they did the movies as well, and they were all super popular. So they're like, well, let's do a TV series. But when they did the TV series, they took much more of a slice of life approach with it because, again, yeah, there's yeah. not that much labor crime. And so there's the TV series, and then there's actually a series of OAVs that follow the TV series and are kind of extend it as well. There's like a dozen of those. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of the 
more or less end for the story. But yeah, Pat Labor is amazing. It really is. It never got the appreciation it probably should have in North America. I mean, a lot of people went nuts for the movies because they looked really nice and Mamoru Oshii. Um, yeah. But the TV series itself is the best version of the story, I would argue. Yeah. Mostly because it's just so character-driven. And again, the mechs are almost just this background... I mean, they're important, but they're more of a background element than anything else to the story. It really is just about the people. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're just they're they're a tool. It's like getting into a car. Exactly, and they're treated that way too. Even the mechs, they're not capable of doing like acrobatic flips in the air. I think that does happen once, but that's. Um, if I remember, it was kind of an accident. It was an accident. That's exactly <laughs> right. It was an accident, and they break very easily, and they because they're not that mm. they're not these armored war machines. That's not what they're meant for. They're just yeah, they're construction machines basically, and they just customize these ones to look kind of like heroic robots because they want them to be they're ba- public relations basically. Like these are the police ones, so they figure they have to look kind of like heroic mecha, but they're not really. Yeah heroic mecha really not in the traditional <laughs> sense anyway um right. they're pretty effective though they're effective in a fight but to a limited degree let's put it that way yeah um okay so yeah definitely in the pat laboro tv which i believe was 88 um yes 88 to eight, uh wait yeah tv series with a sorry the T, pat laboro tv series which was 89 to 90 the original um oavs were 88 and then yeah. the new files, the sequel to the TV series, and then in OAVs, were 1990 to 1992 they came out. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Um, now, the next sh- show that I would argue has a big influence... Oh, well, actually, okay, we, we should probably just continue. So, okay, let's continue from there. So, okay. so after Pat LeBar, what would you say comes next? For the real robots? Yes, because we're, we're talking real robots. We're not in the... Uh, uh, we're not in super robot land anymore. Yeah, I would say that what ends up happening when you get into the 90s, mm. there's something of a resurgence of the super robot. Kind of, yeah. I would agree with that. That you get these like much better animated and better looking like uh, super robot shows. Because for me, the next one that I think is noteworthy mm. would be like way, way down the line. And that would be Evangelion. Yeah, in 96. No, no, Evangelion is 90... Oh, sorry, 95. 95, 96. 95, yeah. yes, 95, 96. Yeah. So, Evangelion in 95. Yeah, I would agree with that. The only one that I could see being possibly significant as far as real robots go... Oh, okay. No, that's 96. Sorry. I was going to say Vision of Escaflone. Um, but, okay. Because uh, so, there's, there's a couple of noteworthy ones that, that happen, like Victory Gundam... Mm happens happens during that time right um that's where you get uh like uh gundam 80 yeah you get char's counter attack which are noteworthy but they're kind of uh better versions mm. of something that's already there they're not they don't really add anything to the mix they just kind of tinker around and soup up what's already there well they're expanding yeah they're expanding on what's already there they're they're, mm-hmm. they're taking a progressively more quote unquote realistic take on the original Gundam series is what they are, yeah. And so they're not really adding much. And so yes, yeah, so in a weird way, we I agree with you. We basically come full circle in ninety um, five there with uh, Evangelion, where once yep. again super robots and real robots 
basically merge just like they did with Gundam, except going the opposite direction. Yeah, because I think that's when you go back to, um, like, the Idian, the Aura Battler thing, mm. the Dunbine thing, that you're now producing what's plays out like a super robot show. Mm. But you've taken the sensibility and the trappings of a real robot show mm. and applied them. So you're still doing super robot things, but mm. you've thought them out more, so they make concrete sense given the setting. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So very well thought out super robot shows, basically. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of, I guess... I'd compare it to, like, say, the uh, Marvel movies. Mm. That they kind of tinker with it and they kind of kind of change things up a little bit to make it more, mm-hmm. say, palatable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to a non-superhero inducted audience. Right. But sense. it's still a superhero show. It just feels a little more grounded because there's a little more backstory to how things are. Like, Asgardians aren't gods. It's just... it's science that looks like magic to you primitive humans and mm. peter parker has organic web shooters because if you could develop like those web shooters and a super strong adhesive that disintegrates after an hour there's no reason why you should be poor you know and it kind of files off the rough spots yep. to give more more cred mm-hmm. to what you're already doing anyway right and it should be noted that at this point uh in the 90s we've also got Gundam series coming out almost every year at this point. And yeah. they're using the Gundam series to generally explore um, real robots in many different eras. Because in the 90s, you get start getting variant Gundam series where they're no longer part of the continuity of the original series anymore. They're trying all these one-shot settings. Yeah, um, The very first of those being G-Fighter Gundam, Mobile Fighter G-Gundam, which is the Gundam Super Robot series, basically. One of the greatest things the human race has ever created. And uh, followed by Gundam Wing, which was single-handedly responsible for making Gundam popular in North America, I would argue. Yeah. Which is weird, because as I recall, the the guy who was in charge of it hated Gundam. Really? I thought that was the story, that that was why it takes these, like, weird twists and turns, is because the guy was like, fuck it, I don't care, just do this. Okay, I hadn't heard that story, but I will go look that up. Um, and so since then, off and on, we'll have uh, Gundam series on a semi-regular basis. Um, mm. So, cause, but yeah, Evangelion um, kind of brings things together. The thing I want to comment about Evangelion before we move on is, I think Evangelion was also the one, and this is, this, there's something weird that happens with Evangelion, and we kind of talked about it last episode as well. Where mm-hmm. Evangelion, because it's so popular, it kind of breaks a lot of genres and breaks a lot of rules and everything. Um, yeah. Before this, realistic robot shows, quote unquote, real robot shows, tried to be, well, for lack of a better word, real. Um, and they they were they were at least making some pretense that this all made sense in a weird way. But after mm-hmm. Evangelion, I've noticed we get a lot of series which are just basically about here's characters that go to a high school and they also fight in real robots at the same time (laughs) in their spare time. That would be full metal panic, by the way. Um, Mm -hmm. And we get a lot of shows like that, um, which are, they're almost more like teen drama with Mecha, but the Mecha are fairly realistic for some reason, or there, we get a lot of weird stuff like that. And I'd say most of that's Evangelion's fault. 
Yeah, because I think, again, too, like, um, Evangelion was kind of artsy-fartsy, but mm. if you watched all of it and you kind of sat down, you could parse through it, and it all does kind of make sense in its own way. Mm. And I think a lot of what came later, it's the idea, like, we had here with the slasher flicks in the 80s, mm. that the tropes just kind of take off and people forget why the original ones did that. Exactly, yeah. And so we get a whole lot of that after Evangelion, where, yeah. like I said, they're basically just teen dramas with robots plunked into them. But in a weird way that, to me at least, never quite matches, or sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It just, But the focus is still the teen drama because that's what everyone loved in Evangelion, so they kind of shoehorn it in there anyway. That's, yeah, that's, that's why I would say before Evangelion, the mech shows tended to be for better or for worse, tended to be serious science fiction shows in a lot of cases. The realistic robot ones were. I would argue after Evangelion, a lot of them aren't anymore. They're not even trying in a lot of cases. I mean, they may pay lip service to it, but a lot of shows since Evangelion are just, yeah, like I said, they're these hyper young adult dramas, basically. They're not, they're not science fiction shows, first and foremost. They're dramas, first and foremost. Yeah, I could I could see it. Which you kinda had before. Hmm. But like I said, the original real robot shows would introduce these dramatic bits hmm. to resolve them as the show went on. Right. And a lot of the newer ones, they're just I think again it goes back to like the super robot style of doing it hmm. where this guy's just the knucklehead, this guy's the emo kid, hmm. you know, this guy mom didn't love him. Right. And it, it doesn't exactly go anywhere or evolve or change until you have the very special episode mm -hmm. and and i again i think it's it's there's more of like a a perpetual model mm -hmm. to a lot of newer stuff mm -hmm. yeah yeah where it's not really going anywhere you mean yeah that there's going to be an end but we're not really building towards that end mm -hmm. Stuff happens, and then in the last couple episodes, we're going to explain why, roll credits, do the sequel next year kind of thing. Sometimes. I mean, it, it does depend. Um, there are there there have been one or two robot series that, again, kind of border, kind of straddle the line. Um, the one I'm thinking of, Code Geass, uh, which came mm -hmm. out in the mid-2000s, late 2000s, I think it was 2007. Um, Code Geass is another one where they started to go back towards the realistic robots. So uh, Code Geass basically takes place in a setting, just for, for the audience, it takes place in a setting where basically the British Empire conquered the world, basically. Um, ever, uh, the rest of the planet is ba are all vassal states of the British Empire, and the king is basically a dick. Um, and so, surprise, it's about our heroic group of rebels. Um Although, mm -hmm. <laughs> in Code Geass, that's actually kind of... Uh, that that doesn't quite... How can I phrase this? Saying that it's just another story about a heroic group of rebels... That we, another story about a heroic group of rebels in Code Geass isn't quite right. Because they're not mm -hmm. moving around. They're still all going to the same high school. Now, this again, this <laughs> goes back to the whole... What I was saying earlier about everything after... Evangelion became a high school drama with Max and Code Geass is yeah. another example of that. It's this epic world changing political military drama that is still largely about these characters going to high school with each other and having high school conflicts. And Oh, by the way, they also pirate pilot 
They also pilot mechs that are fighting against each other without realizing who's in the other mech. And this goes on for quite a while. Yeah, I think that's... You've you've hit on something there, too, because a lot of um, uh, Japanese cartoons from the last decade or so, mm. they're really beaten that kids in high school that do things drum really hard. Uh-huh. Like, it's it's it's... I'm not exactly sure why. Is it because they're aiming for a younger market or they figure that this is the only thing anybody has in common anymore that we all are going or went to high school? So it's the only thing left that anyone can relate to. But there are so many that just mm. they they take that weird like I'm, uh, there, there's two in particular that stick with me. They're not robot shows. Mm. But what was the one? Was it a uh, Hellenica? Mm. I'm... The the one show. It was like the history of World War Two, but every country was like a like a whiny oh, teenager. Hitalia. 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 Yeah, that's Italia. Yeah. Which is and it's a high school drama where every character represents a different country during the World War Two era and they have the associated kind of stereotypical personality of that country. And their relationships yeah. and everything are kind of based on that country too. And how it's relationships with the other countries. Now I wonder if because that was super popular, that's why everybody uh, do something in high school. Yeah. Cause the other one that I I actually have seen a few episodes is one of those things I can't tell if it's horrifying or awesome. Mm. Was uh the series Girls und Panzer. Oh. Where Which is where you yeah. you go to a high school with tanks, like for no reason. <laughs> well, not exactly. What's going on is is that high schools for whatever bizarre reason include a tank warfare club where they mm. where they're actually so everything's just like a normal <laughs> high school except in their spare time they practice mock tank battles and mm. they, yeah they use tanks to like fight stuff which i think originally started i think i'm not sure about this but i think it started as some kind of joke and it's got one of those hope. jokes that got out of control and became something real <laughs> Um, like, I mean, before the show, I think it was like some comic or something like that. And people are like, oh, that's mm-hmm. so cute. We should make a real show. It's like, who thinks that? Really? Uh, well, cause, cause uh, have you watched it? I watched like the first two episodes, if I remember right. Yeah. It's, it's been a while. Kind of, kind of all you need. It's weird. It, it, cause it's the most like, when you look at the characters and that, they're the most like saccharine, syrupy show oh, yeah. ever with Moe. these super it's detailed. Moe, dude. Okay, super realistic, detailed tank fights that kind of just seem to come out of nowhere. And then, then they go back to being, like, so very pink. Like, it's, 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 it's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Yep, yep, that sound, that's, that's that show. Yeah, definitely. That's Girls and Panzer. Um, and so, I mean, well, here, I was watching a video uh, by the other day by a guy named, uh, well, I, I don't know if it's pronounced Giguk. Or this is YouTube. He's a YouTuber named Giguk, I think, or Gig UK. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to pronounce that thing, but whatever. Mm-hmm. You can find him. It's like Gig UK, Giguk. Um, and so, and he was talking about his theory uh, was that mecha anime are in decline and have been for about ten years or so. As far as he's concerned, mm-hmm. they kind of peaked in 2007 with uh, Code Geass and um, oh, uh, the one everyone we should have talked about last week, but everyone's nuts over. Oh no, we did. And Tenga Toppen Gurren Langan, which which mm. also came out in 2007. And he thinks that since then, everything's kind of fallen, uh, you know, that mecha shows have fallen out of favor and they're gone. But he thinks that that's partly because 
the current generation has grown up in such a state of peace, they can't relate to it anymore. That was that was his thesis, is that mecha shows are in decline because the idea of warfare and war and all that doesn't appeal to the modern audience. They're too, he doesn't say this, but I would say this, soft and non-confrontational, especially we're talking about modern Japanese. They just don't have that connection with that, you know, that high intensity drama anymore, the same way the old old audiences did. It doesn't. It doesn't have that cultural resonance. Uh, it doesn't have that cultural resonance. Basically, I think. I think he's he's right and wrong at the same time. Okay, go for it. Like I don't. I don't think it's because the Kurt generation knows nothing of war. What fucking planet does he live on? Like, well, Japan is astoundingly he, peaceful. Uh, yeah, just uh, ask their uh, their defense force and <laughs> who's been trying to become an actual army for the last decade. But but, but but as someone who's actually walked in Japan more than a few times in the last two decades, I can tell you it is astoundingly peaceful. You have no idea. A North American can't conceive of how how it feels to be walking in Tokyo. It literally is like you feel about it. I, I felt I was more in danger in Disneyland than I did when I then I was walking in Tokyo. It's like it's like people literally wander around in their pajamas. It's like it's like the safest place on earth, and it really feels that way too. Except for like uh, the yakuza, but that's a slightly different story, and they mostly just they keep to themselves anyway. Yeah, because it's 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 been like that forever, though. Yes. I think what yes. what's I think what the difference is. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes way back when we talked about the the comics and the super robots, with like how you had like Tetsujin and and, and Tetsuan Adam and that. Mm-hmm. Is that the future isn't a bright place, mm-hmm. and technology isn't this awesome stuff that will make your life better. It's the thing that's going to make you obsolete and not have a job. Right. So it's hard to it's hard to root for the giant robot because the giant robot is the thing that ensures that you're going to be living in one of those like internet hotels until the day God finally lets you die. I see your point. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And and I think I think of that too because like I'm looking at pictures from some of the new shows. Mm-hmm. And they're all these like young kids and you can okay, there's the angry one, there's the meathead, and then everybody else just looks sad. Like they all look and it it ties in with um, we talked about it before when you talked about the uh, Japanese light novels, mm-hmm. who the heroes are compared to who the heroes of like the uh, Chinese web novels are. Right. Yeah. And and we were talking about that how uh, the heroes in the Chinese ones are always these like godlike massive figures that can do everything, mm. but China as a world player as an economy isn't an upswing, mm-hmm. and Japan. Where, like, their heroes are always these, like, meats, or even if they're not, they're fairly unmotivated and passive. Mm-hmm. Japan has been contracting for a while. That, like, during the age of, like, the, the real robot, they were on top of the world. Yeah, they were. And now if you're a kid growing up there, all of these things that even your parents had, like, you know, lifetime employment, um, stuff place to live like that's not all guaranteed anymore and i think that might be part of what colorizes it i think you're right i mean i think some of it is definitely there's uh stagnation that's going on no question Mm -hmm. on that i mean japan has been kind of stagnating since like the 90s they really have and so 
you exist in this. I, I think there's a lot to what you have to say there. Yeah. Whereas, whereas China represents like this aggressive, uh, sorry, I shouldn't use the word aggressive. Um, China, Chinese culture is, as you said, it's in an upswing. And so Chinese media tends to be very um, assertive and positive and forward looking. Yeah. Whereas the Japanese stuff, and maybe Evangelion truly represents that actually, maybe because that is around the right turning point. The Japanese mm-hmm. stuff is more a little more introspective. It's a little more navel gazing. It's a little more. What do we do with ourselves? They don't really yeah. have a clear direction anymore culturally, yeah, or individually in many cases. Well, yeah, it's, it's individually because a lot of the uh, the things that used to keep people in line mm-hmm. aren't there. It's the same thing. I think you're gonna start seeing in North America if if we haven't already. I'd say we have actually. Yeah, but I mean from the idea that right now um, the thing that kept everybody in line was your pension. Mm, True. Keep your head down, kiss the right asses, polish the right apples, and the last few years of your life can be your own and you can just relax and do whatever you want. Yeah. But more and more that's becoming not the standard and Mm. that has an effect on on society. That has an effect because it affects the individual. Right. And the individual doesn't look forward to the future now because it's not going to be like, I get to retire and rest. I'm going to be working this stupid job until, again, God lets me die. Yep. Yep. That's the modern North American way. Mm-hmm. And so I can see North American stuff becoming much more angry, actually. Well, and it kind of does because we're still stuck in our dark, gritty thing. Well, correction. I see North American culture going in two different directions. <laughs> Oddly mm-hmm. enough, left and right. Um it's in on the right side. I see people becoming much more angry and militant and everything. Um, mm-hmm. And but on on the left, I'm not sure if I can entirely characterize this to the left, but I'm going to anyway. Some people are going to hate me for it, but whatever. Um, I can see people engaging in large amounts of infantilization, where what they're trying to do is they're trying to live in a perpetual childhood, mm-hmm. and they're basically trying to hide in their this perpetual childhood like peter pan style instead so these are the people that are still 30 years old and live in a harry potter world where they're obsessed with harry potter and are basically waiting for their letter from hogwarts i think i think it was jack who said that in the one episode (laughs) um but no there really are people who like that there's a lot of people especially the millennials right now the ones who who are basically reached reached their formative years in the 90s and the 2000s who basically don't quite know what to do with themselves Mm-hmm. I mean, they look at the future and go, wow, the future is probably going to suck. Why would I want to engage with this? And so they would rather just tinker around with their hobbies or you know, kind of immerse themselves in pop culture and kind of do their best to just enjoy their life in whatever form rather than you know, go out and try to you know, make their place in the world because the world's a scary, sucky place. Yeah, I think you're right, but I don't think it necessarily breaks up left, right. I think the the details do. Mm. Because I think you get, like, uh, anger Mm -hmm. on both sides. Yeah, definitely. And that's who you hear from, because that's where, like, you get, like, the alt-right that think the uh, the gay Jewish lizard people are trying to make us all get secret Muslim gay abortions. They're not? No, they're not. And that's where you see people on the left that think if you use, like, the wrong pronoun accidentally, then you're worse than Hitler and should be sent away to a camp somewhere until you die. Yeah. And then on both sides, you get the other thing where I do think you get the the people, say, on the left that will just disappear into, like, their entertainment. Mm. 
And you get the people on the right that pine for this weird mythical 1950s that never really happened. Right. And I think, because I think just those feelings are, are, are universal. Right. Yeah, I can see that. They, they manifest different, but yeah. And and then and, and that's kind of why, um, mm-hmm. yeah, we do a lot of navel gazing that you get kind of the same old stuff. Or if anything is new, it bears a startling resemblance to something old. Right, right. Because so, it's... Mm-hmm. Oh, no, go ahead. So, yeah. So, and I think that's our take on it. And the Japanese, I think, are experiencing that same kind of thing. They're in a state of stagnation. They don't know what the future is going to be. And so the young people of today, they're pining for this weird high school existence that never existed. And at the same Mm. time, they're also, because that's, you know, that's the one happy time, I guess, when you're in high school or youth or something like that. And so the whole youth focused culture which you know it's been it was like that the original Gundam pilot was a teen too yeah but he didn't literally attend high school while he was fighting evil max (laughs) okay no he spent most of his time in the brig yeah he did actually he spent a lot of time in the brig for being a whiny rebellious little git um (laughs) that that's a traditional with Gundam pilots that they've continued from the super robot era (laughs) um but the point again is that so modern japanese i think the mechs don't really resonate the way they once did anymore. I think that there's still yeah. some appeal to them, but I don't think they hold the same place in the society anymore or the culture. Yeah, and I think that's probably why you haven't seen anything really new hmm. for, holy smokes, like almost 20 years. There's been a ton of because, remakes. Yeah, but it's because nobody's really found that new take mm. that registers with with the public right because again i think um the japanese giant robots are going to be like superheroes here they're always going to exist they're so ingrained in the culture mm. and kind of like superheroes here i think they don't represent what they used to anymore mm. that like i say the giant robot was was technology it was that technology would save us, that technology was, was the future, that technology was how we made our way in the universe. And, mm-hmm. and, and now technology is that scary thing that takes your job and beams ads directly into your head. Well, yes. Okay. It's, it's both a prison, but it's also a tool. Remember, I mean, the Japanese are just as, if not more immersed in technology than we are. I mean, especially yeah. the young people of Japan. I mean, they are still a bit ahead of us technologically wise. And so technology wise. And so as an end result, the Japanese youth, yeah, they have this love hate relationship with technology, I think. But it's the same thing we have here. Mm, true. That if it's technology that lets us indulge like a cell phone, then it's awesome. But, mm. you know, anything else we either don't give a a thought to or Mm. it's you know we just don't notice right and also i think that uh something else that's happening is the modern japanese youth and i'd say this is happening here too are also starting to have trouble to relate to each other because they've got they're so used to that technology and this is something that we're still learning about actually the effect that uh, cell phones have you know on young people as they're growing up having that constant mm-hmm. access to technology and communication and this constant source of, well, basically dopamine that you can just pump into your brain <laughs> by constantly experiencing fun, new, interesting things. 
that has an effect on people. And yeah. one of the side effects seems to be that it's actually inhibiting the development of social skills, at least based on my experience here. And I think it's happening in Japan as well. Yeah, because what, what ends up happening now is we're all so connected digitally. Hmm. Again, it's not real communication. It's minimal communication with all the rough spots filed off. Yeah. Because I was talking to somebody at work that her kid is in her like early 20s and won't order a pizza. That she, she just finds it so difficult and distasteful to order a pizza over the phone that she just won't do it. It's the anxiety thing where she's got that social anxiety. But then again, we just called people like that shy back in our day. Yeah, but I think again nowadays that there's a lot of people willing to capitalize on your shyness. Absolutely. And then that makes it worse. Mm. And then that gives them something else they can like capitalize on. Right. I wonder also if the Japanese creators at this point aren't really sure what will resonate with the audience anymore. Maybe the audience is just so fragmented at this point that they don't really know what to do. So they're kind of just throwing this generic kitchen sink approach together. I think there's that. And I think you also get the same um, Hmm. kind of problem that we had in the Mm nineties with say the comic industry. And you think about um, Mm -hmm. image comics and all their clones, right? That it was the the next generation of producers took over. And they, of course, do what appeals to them. And what appeals to them is Wolverine, 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 and more Wolverine. And that was why, like, 90s comic books were almost universally so terrible. Because it was just a whole team of Wolverines. And Mm -hmm. every line of dialogue was, angry! Because the producers grew up reading comics and that and wanting to do comics and didn't have anything new to add to the mix. Right. And I'm wondering if that's kind of the thing you see with like, say the, uh, the Japanese robot stuff. Right. That the people who are working in it now, mm. they, they don't have, uh, they don't have a new idea to add to the stew. Mm. So you're kind of getting refinements of the old stuff, yep. but it's still the old stuff. Yeah. No, no, I think you're exactly right, yeah. It's just, there. it's a copy of a copy of a copy situation. Yeah, and then that's one of the reasons why, like, say, the Issei stories are so popular, because they're all isekai. so similar. Isekai, yeah. yeah. They're all so similar, and they're based around a guy who plays game all the time. And that's the a very lowest common denominator that most people can relate to. It is. I mean, isekai generally, the popular ones anyway, generally tend to have very simple stories and very simple concepts that are usually reasonably well executed. And they're very yeah. and they're variations on a theme, but at least they're trying some different stuff. And I'll give them points for that. Um, yeah. Not too many points, but eh, then again, I mean, <laughs> robot shows are all variations on a theme too, right? So there's your thing. Yeah, they are. And then that was, that was a thing like we were talking about the last two episodes mm. is that you would get these differences and the thing that would create the whole new stream of thought mm-hmm. would usually be like only a small idea, but it leads to other, other things. And I think mm. we're kind of at that point where nobody's really got even that small idea to flavorize the mix. Right. That's a good point. 
Yeah, and I, I don't think that's just limited to like the the robots. I think like entertainment in general. It's like you were saying. It's that combination of such a a, a di- diffused mm-hmm. audience mm. and having so few new ways to mix the same old stuff that this is why everything kind of plays out the same. Mm. Uh, at least in theory, until something new pops up that kind of breaks the mold and, you know, sets a new standard. Um, Yeah. One could argue that Sword Art Online kind of did that. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, it mostly did that. It brought the focus back around to the Isekai stuff and also to the lit RPG stuff. There hasn't been another show that's really had that huge an effect on things since then. I mean, there are popular series. There definitely are. But as far as something that changes the mold or changes the model or creates a new direction that I know of, we haven't seen one yet, but yeah, we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there'll be something eventually. Oh, well, one hopes. I mean, one hopes. <laughs> and, and on that note, I think we should call it a night. Mm. Thank you everyone for listening to our discussion of Mecha anime. It might not have gone the way some of you were hoping. And I'm sure we didn't mention some of your, favorite series probably as we went along i mean we didn't go into uh, all the different gundams in fact maybe we'll do a gundam episode at one point or three <laughs> or three well i think we can probably get it done in one i think we can do it in one but it'll it'll take a little work because there's there is quite a few we can definitely spend an hour or two talking about gundam mm-hmm. and there you know we've skipped up over a few ebbs and flows i mean there have been times when the real robots have become popular and gone away and there are various series that uh, have changed things, but I think we got a lot of the major ideas of what's happened with the real robots since the release of Mobile Suit Gundam in 1979. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what we want to cover. So between this mm-hmm. and Super Robots, I think we've done an okay job. <laughs> tell us why we're wrong. Come on, tell us why we're wrong. <laughs> I challenge you. I challenge you. Come on the show. Come to ObeyTheDNA.com. Tell us why we're wrong. Tell us why we should have talked more about your favorite robot series. And let us know in the comments section. (laughs) Please. Until then, I'm Rob Patterson. That's Don Chisholm. Good night, folks. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!